It's Tuesday, March 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new study conducted by the CDC that followed about 4,000 healthcare personnel, police, firefighters, and other essential workers found that under real-life conditions, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are 90% effective after your second dose. Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on vaccine effectiveness. Next, the long-awaited report into the origins of COVID-19 has arrived, but unfortunately, it still leaves key questions unanswered. The most likely scenario is that the virus jumped from bats to a still unknown intermediary animal and then on to humans. The findings may still be called into question as the investigators had little power to conduct an impartial investigation without Chinese influence. Drew Henshaw, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what we know about the WHO report. Finally, there's a mysterious disease killing young black bears in California. Bears normally shy away from humans, and one of the symptoms is a newfound fearlessness. The disease causes the bear's brains to become inflamed and could be related to some new viruses found in bears with these symptoms. Ryan Sabalo, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, joins us for the curious illness affecting bears. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What this study did is it looked at those real-world conditions across the United States in six states and in all different kinds of workers who are on the front line. And they found that it was provided really robust effectiveness in preventing infections. Joining us now is Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lena. Happy to be here. We got some really good news uh, coming out of Pfizer and Moderna with these vaccines. We have some now, uh, some data on the real life conditions of how effective it is. And after you get both of your vaccines, it's 90% effective. This is a study that the CDC did. This is coupled with the news that uh, President Biden announced about 90% of adults will be eligible to get their vaccines in the next three weeks. So a lot of good news on this. But uh, Lena, help us walk through some of this study and what we're finding out. So I think people remembered when the FDA authorized these two drugs back in December and researchers were stunned at how strong the data was. It's over 90 percent efficacy in the clinical trials. And, you know, the difference between the clinical trials and the real world is in a clinical trial, they can make sure that everything is measured just right that the vaccines that have to be frozen and stored at certain temperatures are done precisely. Obviously, when you go to the real world, well, you're dealing with the real world, right? Do they remember to take it out in time? Was the vaccine used past its expiration date? And all those things. So the key for any vaccine is always to see how it does in real world conditions. What this study did is it looked at those real world conditions across the United States in six states and in all different kinds of workers who are on the front line. And they found that it was provided really robust effectiveness in preventing infections. And that's really important because the people who were part of the study were all the kinds of people who are on the front lines, healthcare personnel, firefighters, police, essential workers, all the kinds of people who would have contact with the public and are at greater risk of exposure to the virus and also to spreading the virus. When this study was conducted, it was during that winter surge that, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, were dying. A lot of people were getting infected. So um, this was kind of like a, a, a big stress test for it also. 
it was a really big stress test because it was at that time, you know, by January, if you remember, that more than 3,000 people a day were dying. And when the clinical trials were done, they were done at a different part of the year and the case counts were not as high yet. And the other important thing to remember about this study is it's one of the first to look at how effective the vaccines were against infection, not just people monitoring for symptomatic cases, but for infections that did not result in symptoms. And that's really important because many of these people, because they swabbed and collected these swabs you know, themselves, CDC was able to pick up when there was virus detected before symptoms even appeared. And that's when you want to know because you could have the virus and not show signs of sickness and still spread it to other people. So that's what this was very important to see. Right. Some of the uh, designers of this study were also saying that's part of what made it so difficult to design. You know, it was kind of the honor system. You relied on the participants themselves to take those swabs and send them in. The CDC had to negotiate with FedEx and UPS even to make sure everything could be shipped properly. So that was a, a big challenge to what was going on there. The people that they enrolled, these participants, are very busy people. And so that you had to make sure that they could take time out of their busy lives. The healthcare personnel were on the front lines taking care of patients and the other essential workers were also busy and that they had to remember to do this swab every week, right, for 13 weeks, regardless of whether they had any symptoms, send all the stuff into this one lab. The CDC had to negotiate with FedEx and UPS because they were getting like thousands and thousands of samples were being sent to this one lab. But people were really good and, you know, they had like 100 percent completion almost for these tasks. And so this study will be important because going forward, it's going to tease out a lot more things like whether these vaccines protected against the variants. Finally, Lena, if you could just uh, help us walk through the breakdown of who the participants were. We know that there were a lot of frontline workers, as you mentioned, healthcare, police, firefighters, all of that. But, uh, you know, we saw that about 72 percent of them were between the ages of 18 and 49. The majority were female. Well, what else do we know about these participants? Well, we know that most of them were white and healthy and didn't have chronic medical conditions. And the fact that they were younger, the you know, in the 18 to 49 age group is important because that is a signal for a lot of the working age adults that it works in this age group. 62% of the people who were vaccinated got the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and about 30% received Moderna. Um, there were five people, just five people, who got the Johnson & Johnson. Because by the time this trial ended, by the study ended, Johnson & Johnson had just been approved, and so there were not very many doses of Johnson & Johnson going out. And then the remainder of the people who got these vaccinations, they're still trying to confirm exactly which vaccine they got. About 63% of the people received both recommended doses, and 12% received one dose. So for the effectiveness here, You have to get the two doses and the full immunity kicks in 14 days after your second dose. Lena Sun, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All hypotheses are on the table and warrant 
complete and uh, further studies from what I have seen so far. Joining us now is Drew Hinshaw, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We finally got this report from the World Health Organization looking into the origins of COVID-19. Drew, you and I have been talking about this for quite some time and kind of the ups and downs with this report already. It still seems to be very much in line with what we've found out before already. The leading suspect case for all this is that the virus crossed over from bats, possibly to another animal, and then on to humans. The new report all but ruled out this lab leak hypothesis that was floating around, Mm -hmm. although it kind of leaves the door open for a little bit of everything. I think one of the the top concerns with all of this is uh, how much influence China did have on this report. So, Drew, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. The way to look at this report is this is a request to do more research. They're saying, here's what we've here's what Chinese researchers mainly have done. And here's what we'd like to do going forward. And what we can see from that is there's not a lot of evidence that this virus was spreading very widely in China before December. And the WHO is saying, okay, you guys haven't found any of that, but we still think there might be some there. So let's go and look at like blood banks. Did anybody give blood or has a blood sample in a hospital somewhere from November, October of 2019 that if we went back and tested it would show they were a COVID patient? Tell us a little bit about how this was done, because Chinese researchers were the ones that really did all the footwork, then just presented the information to the WHO scientists. So they really didn't have a hand in, in a lot of this. Most of this was summaries given to the WHO of here's the research we've done. We've tested thousands of animals. They tried to test 92 people retrospectively for antibodies. The WHO said, ah, it seems like not enough people. Like, you know, in all of central China, you should have tested more potential cases than, than 92. But most of this was Chinese researchers giving presentations to the WHO. And in the room are Chinese government officials working for a government that continues to suggest that this pandemic didn't begin in China at all. So it's very complicated, very diplomatic and and an interesting situation. The report does pretty much say that it's very, very unlikely that this was not leaked from a lab, but they still pushed for other ways that it might have come to China, including they said they wanted to look at some health data from the military world games in October in 2019. I think they suggested that it was a U.S. delegation that went there that might have brought it in. They're dealing with the lab because the Trump administration brought it up. And then China responded, well, it's not our lab. It was your U.S. soldiers coming to Wuhan for the military games. The WHO includes it and says, we need to look more at the the military games. And then in the annex says, by the way, nobody at the military games was sick with anything like COVID-19. Really, what the WHO would like to look at, they want to look at animals. They want to look at ferret badgers, mink, raccoon dogs, small mammals who might have been that intermediate animal that got sick from a bat and then spread it to a human. What about the uh, wet market, the Wuhan seafood market there? It doesn't really seem like that was necessarily an origin. It might just seem like that was probably the first major super spreader event. There's a seafood a seafood market. You know, fish don't spread COVID. And even if, they, you know, there, was some, there were some wild animals there, but even when wild animals are sold in a market like this, it's usually like in one part of the market. But when you look at the sampling, they did sampling all over this market and they found, you know, virus all over the place. It's all over the market you know, to the researchers we've talked to, that looks more like a bunch of sick people were coughing and sneezing all over this market than there was a cluster of wild animals with COVID-19 in one corner of it. And because one of the other hypotheses was that 
it possibly could have been uh, contaminated frozen food packaging. They, right. they also said that that was pretty unlikely. Yeah, the WHO has been, you know, they've had to distinguish between two things. It is potentially possible that in a world that has registered, you know, 100 million COVID cases, where there's COVID cases every single day, it is maybe possible that a sick, you know, seafood plant worker coughs onto a, a bag full of frozen salmon that goes all the way to China. It gets thawed, someone touches it, and then they touch their mouth and they give them, you know, they contract the disease that way. It's not proven really, but it's possible. It is really hard to imagine that the very first case of COVID-19 ever came from something like that. The WHO is saying that's extremely unlikely that the initial outbreak in Wuhan began with a seafood, uh, like imported seafood or something like that. We have this report that doesn't really seem like it was done by independent scientists. As, as we mentioned, you know, Chinese researchers had, had a big hand in all of this. Where do we go from here? Are we going to get another Look, report? The world may never know. The world may never know who was patient zero. We may never know which animal where. We might not even ever know if this began in Wuhan at all. Like, you know, maybe it began in a small town outside. It could have begun in the south of China where people have more contact with bats. We might not ever know where this disease exactly first erupted, who was, you know, person number one, you know, we might not know what we're going to find. I think we're going to find a bat that has a similar virus in it at some point. I think that's probable. I think we're going to find out which animals would have served as a really good intermediary host, a really effective one, you know, like a, a, a mink on a fur farm, potentially something like that. But in terms of really pinpointing kind of like who in October or November, 2019 was this first person who made this mistake or whatever happened that right. causes pandemic, I don't think we're going to find out. And we're definitely not going to find out so long as it is overshadowed by these tensions between the U.S. and China. Drew Henshaw, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, too. Their heads are cocked at kind of like an inquisitive angle. And they just come right up to you. And if you're out in nature at all, that's for a black bear, at least, they're supposed to run from you. That's just their instinct. We represent danger to them. Joining us now is Ryan Sabalo, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Hey, no problem. I wanted to talk about this mysterious disease that is killing off some California bears, young bears in the Tahoe area. I know California and Nevada are, are looking into this. But basically, one of these uh, key symptoms that we're seeing in these bears is uh, a bit of fearlessness. You know, bears usually don't like to uh, be approached by humans and they'll run away. And we're seeing some of these bears kind of just not have that. There was a, a viral video that hit last year of a small bear in the Tahoe area going up to a snowboarder. And scientists were kind of a bit confused and a bit concerned about what they saw because that normal fearfulness that they usually have was not there. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. This thing kind of reminds me of that chronic wasting disease, if you heard it in deer. It's a little similar, but it's not exactly the same. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit about what we're hearing. I'm glad you brought up chronic wasting disease because I've actually written some about that as well. What's going on is we're getting these reports of usually young bears coming up to people completely fearless. Their heads are cocked at kind of like an inquisitive angle, and they just come right up to you. And if you're out in nature at all, that's for a black bear at least, they're supposed to run from you. That's just their instinct. We represent danger to them. So this video goes viral of this snowboarder in Tahoe having this little cute bear cub come up and snip his leg as he's up in a North Star. 
And scientists look at that and they're like, eh, that's just a little too cute to be true. So they went and uh, they captured the bear. And sure enough, it has brain inflammation that they've been seeing in bears since 2014. There was another bear who was uh, a 21 pound female that uh, was being very inquisitive, jumped into a, a open trunk of a car and everything. Well, when they took that bear back and, and did some tests on it, you know, that bear should have been 80 pounds. So this disease uh, that's affecting them, you know, is affecting their growth and a bunch of other things. They did some sort of DNA study looking at the viruses that were in these bears. And I believe it was something like two thirds or three quarters of them had these different types of viruses in them. But in virology, it's very difficult to tell whether this was the exact cause. They don't know if it is. You can also get this sort of brain inflammation you know, if you have an immune disorder that causes your body to basically attack itself. And so they're still trying to figure out what it is. It doesn't appear to have any serious effect on the population size at this point. California's bears are doing quite well. Their numbers have basically quadrupled since the 80s, and particularly in the Tahoe Basin, where a lot of these bears are showing up. Tahoe has one of the densest bear populations in North America. And that's a couple of years old. I would imagine at this point it might be, it's, it could be uh, the densest bear population. Uh, you have bears that regularly sleep in people's backyards. They wander through downtown and through residential streets. So the issue is that they keep finding them there. But when I talked with one of the veterinarians, she said, well, you always got to be careful with that because these are very popular bears. You know, they're viewed by the activists there animal rights activists and, and animal lovers in general. Uh, people watch them. They give them names. And so if you're watching bears all the time, you're going to see the ones that get sick, unlike the ones that are out in the woods. You know, they got to find out why it's happening. You know, I brought up chronic wasting disease. You know, that's affecting mostly deer and, and those types of animals. But with that, again, too, you're not supposed to eat that meat. You have to be very careful with them, too. And I know we just went through this whole pandemic. We're still going through it. There was questions raised about if something like this could be a cause for concern for people as well. I say this, I've got a new puppy. I'm actually in what I'm calling parvo prison. We're not allowed to leave the house because the puppy hasn't received all her shots. I say that because there are a number of diseases found in wildlife, a number of viruses found in wildlife, pets and livestock that never jump to people. If you look at the vaccines that my puppy's getting, it's parvovirus, distemper. We could get rabies, but the risk of that just kind of jumping to people without a bite, you know, isn't there. But that being said, you know, the sort of conditions that are in the Tahoe Basin where you have these bears in dense populations sharing bodily fluids at dump sites or, you know, in a lot of cases, these bears are getting so aggressive that they're breaking into people's houses and rummaging through them, leaving feces and bodily fluids, blood and urine and all kinds of stuff, saliva everywhere. There is a risk of, you know, something happening there. But the veterinarian I talked to said, you know, just make sure you're cautious <laughs> when you approach, when you, right. if that is your vacation home and uh, they tear through your house. Just make sure you wear your gloves. If there's a risk of spatters, you know, maybe wear a face shield. Basically, to use PPE, which we all are familiar with, you know, a year ago, <laughs> right. we like, what the heck is that? Now, um, everyone kind of gets uh, droplet protection now. Ryan Sabalo, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.